in a series toward the end of the year, and our Christmas series this year is a series on Revelation, okay? And so it's been a lot of fun, and uh, last week we began this series, and uh, I encouraged you last week to um, read through the entire book of Revelation, uh, if at all possible, in one sitting. Now, as soon as I said that, some of you were like, oh, I forgot, okay? And some of you were like, oh, I just ran out of time, and I didn't get that done, and my schedule was busy. Uh, Let me tell you, and let me just encourage you, no worries, no problem, just try to do it this week. Uh, I'm not here, and this church isn't here uh, to make you feel guilty for all the things that you haven't done. Uh, We are here to encourage you and spur you on uh, in the growth and the steps of growth of faith that you are doing. And so if you didn't get a chance to do that this week, then I encourage you to try to do it this week. If you did get a chance, then my guess is you got a brand new look at Revelation as you saw it uh, in its full scope. Uh, Also, let me just take this opportunity to say that the book is called Revelation, not Revelation. So um, some of you, you know, maybe have heard it, Revelations, and it's singular. Uh, It's the Revelation. Okay. So uh, let me remind you of what we did last week, and then we're going to start. Today we're going to talk about, today we're going to talk about the Mark of the Beast. Are you guys excited about that? Come on, show me some excitement about this. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Very good. So let me, let me quickly review where we were last week. I gave you three keys uh, to understanding the book of Revelation as a whole. And so our text last week was literally the whole book. Um, but uh, first key was this. It was genre. Apocalyptic genre uses imagery. It is often cosmic in scale. In other words, everything is big and huge and cosmic in scale in Revelation. It, it often uses animals uh, to advance the plot. And so we, we uh, in fact, what we're going to look at today, the, the dragon, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth. Jesus is often referred to in the book of Revelation as the Lamb of God. And so there's the images that are used uh, are often animal images. And that's very classic for this genre, uh, particularly uh, ancient apocalyptic genre. And it has the purpose of producing change in the hearer today. Uh, That is to say that apocalypse usually is speaking to us about things regarding the future. It's speaking to us about the future, but for the purpose of producing something in our lives today. Uh, It's meant to produce us, and where we landed last week is that Revelation is really a book of hope, which is why we're looking at it in this Christmas season. So the first key is genre. The second key is context or historical setting. This book was written to seven real churches in Asia Minor, and they would have had to have understood the book in its original setting. In other words, it wasn't, this book does not exist sort of uh, out of context or without context. It was written for a particular audience, and then now, being in the Word of God, being in the Bible, it can speak to us today across all these, th- these generations, all these thousands of years. The beauty of the Word of God is that it speaks to the ones who first heard it, and it also speaks to us today. And the book of Revelation is no different. Typically, when we come to the book of Revelation, we say, oh, it's just for us today. It's just to give us sort of all these clues and these hints and these timelines about the future. But what we often forget is that it had an original audience. These seven churches would have had to have understood what the writer was talking about and then produced something in their lives. And then the third key to understanding Revelation is that it is symbolic. There is a heavy use of symbols in the book. uh, And symbols are used 
to point us to a very real truth. Now, that is not to say that everything in the book is symbolic, that we're always talking about symbols. There are some things that we can take at face value. There are some things that we can take literally. But we have to have the point of discernment of when are we coming across something that is symbolic and what is that trying to point us to and the truth that it's pointing us to. For example, when we come to the end of the book, right? We've read the end of the book and we win. Yay. Okay. When we get to the end of the book, there are also lots of symbols, but those symbols point us to very real truths about what God, uh, what God's, what, what life in God's new creation is going to be. And so these symbols are used to point us to very real, very real truths about God and God's new world. Okay. So today we're going to look at Mark of the Beast. This is perhaps one of, uh, one of the images in Revelation that is used most often to strike fear into the hearts of those who are listening, okay? And, and it has been written about, it has been talked about, uh, and it has just been absolutely uh, used a lot about sort of this invoking fear in people, like, uh, will you take the mark, you know, will you take the mark of the beast? Is your faith strong enough that you wouldn't take the mark of the beast? And all, all these kinds of things, okay? And uh, so many have been scared uh, about this, and, and uh, many actually have been scared about the advancement of technology, uh, kind of fearing that, that the advancement of technology is forever bringing us closer to the mark of the beast. And uh, one of the classic examples of this is when the barcodes started coming out in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, there, there was this belief that hidden inside of every barcode was the mark of the beast, 666. And here's what it comes from. I'll show you a picture of a barcode. All right, so this is a barcode. And uh, you'll see that it points out a typical six, the two skinny bars right next to one another. And you'll see then that at the, at the beginning, the end, and the middle of the barcode is that same uh, symbol is just made longer and it sort of sets the parameters of the barcode. And so when the barcodes first started coming out, lots of people were totally freaking out. This is the mark of the beast. And if this isn't the mark of the beast, then this is certainly bringing us one step closer to the mark of the beast. And so we started getting all sort of artist rendition of what it would look like in the end days if you had the mark of the beast on you. And here's one. Okay. Uh, here's another one. This one, that's not the, it's like the glowing 666. This is the angelic 666. Uh, okay, next one. You know, the, the scripture says the forehead, which, we, which a lot of people, like, you know, kind of get centered on that. But the scripture also says on the hand. And so this artist put it on the hand. Uh, and then there should have been another one right there. Maybe a barcode. Yeah, there you go. See, this one is not biblical at all because it's on the back of the head. Okay, so clearly that's not right. Uh, but you have all this sort of these artist renditions of, of what the mark of the beast might really look like. And, and, and here's, here's the sort of the, the teaching surrounding this. And, and listen, I, I told you right last week that, that what I want to offer you is, is, is a little bit different reading of Revelation from, from what you might hear in popular culture, from what you might hear on the radio and these books that you might read. But, but many teach that the Bible sort of prophesies or, or tells us that, that there will be a day when the world will become cashless and then this effort to become cashless and sort of one global government and one global currency, this effort is, is led by... 
or, or headed up by the person known as the Antichrist. And, uh, and, and then, of course, a cashless society headed by the Antichrist would be, only be possible in a global culture uh, with the mark of the beast. And so we, we turn to Revelation chapter 13. Toward the end, it says you can't, ha- you can't buy or sell uh, in the marketplace without the mark of the beast. And so lots of people kind of surround that with cashless society, one world government, rise of the Antichrist, mark of the beast, whether that's a barcode, whether that's a, a, like a chip implanted in your head or, or hand or all these things. And a lot of people are watching technology to see what is happening and uh, what, are, what are sort of the steps or the advances, advancements in technology that are bringing us closer to the mark of the beast. You got it? I feel like that all of that, that whole sort of surrounding teaching and, and culture actually makes an error based on the second key of understanding Revelation, which is there has to be a historical setting. In other words, if it was really talking about barcodes and advancements in technology and you know, skin implantations and all of this, then, then the seven churches would have been like, What? And they would have had no scope of understanding. It would have made absolutely no sense. If this is what Revelation is really telling us about, then the original audience would have had no even perspective of understanding or or mind to wrap around uh, these advancements that are so common in our culture. I mean, now everything is on, on a barcode, right? Like churches check children in using a barcode. Right? But we don't do that. You're, at this church, we use your telephone number. So. so what is the mark of the beast? If it isn't all of that, then what is it and what does it mean? Well, to do that and to answer that question, we have a, we've, we've got to um, understand how Revelation plays out. And much of Revelation plays out as a drama. Uh, it's sort of this cosmic scale drama on the center stage that happens. And surrounding the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13, this, this one verse that is used to invoke fear and strike fear into the hearts of people and, and around which we've sort of built this whole thing about one world government and all of this, around this verse is actually this, this huge cosmic scale drama going on. And it involves a dragon a beast out of the sea, and a beast out of the earth. And so I want to read the drama to you this morning. Now I'm going to read a lengthy passage of scripture because as I was trying to decide what should I read, I just decided let's read the whole thing, okay? So starting with Revelation chapter 1. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Starting with Revelation chapter 3. 13, so I'll get there. Revelation chapter 13 is our text this morning. Uh, as a reminder, those of you that have a smartphone or a tablet, we, uh, and you have the Holy Bible app or the Bible app that is published by Version. you can go there. Uh, the live notes should be on there with a scripture, a, place, uh, a little sermon outline, and then you can also add your own notes and email them to yourself later. Uh, and then this, the passage will also be up on the screen uh, together. But it's Revelation chapter 13, and uh, let's read it, and let's read this cosmic drama of what's going on, and then we're going to start this morning by understanding who in the world all are all of these characters and what's going on. So, it says this. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, the dragon, I gotta stop, okay? The dragon sort of pops out of nowhere if we start in Revelation 13. We're, we're told all about the dragon in Revelation chapter 12, and actually, Revelation chapter 12, and the 
the work and the activity of the dragon is what we're going to be talking about next week. That is the center of Cosmic Christmas. We're going to be telling, retelling the Christmas story in a dramatic fashion using Revelation chapter 12 next week at Cosmic Christmas. Do not miss it. There, I said it. I worked a commercial into the message. I'm awesome. Okay. The dragon stood at the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and each one, uh, each head had a blasphemous name. Now the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his, his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. And people worshipped the, dra- the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast and who can make war against it? Well, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise its authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place in those who live in the heavens. And it was given power to make war against God's people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast and all whose names all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. For whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. And if anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of of God's people. Well, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast, but on its behalf. And it made the earth and all of its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down out of heaven to the earth in full view of everyone. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast it deceived the inhabitants of the earth and it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived and it was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and it caused all who refused to worship the image to be killed and here's the mark of the beast section It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now this calls for wisdom, he says to the original audience. Understand this. Let those who have insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is six. Six, six. Okay. Let us exegete the text with a whiteboard and a pen. Okay. We have here uh, several characters. Uh, Chief among them is one that we are introduced to, and then we hear more about the beasts. But first, the first character we meet is the dragon. Now, who is the dragon? If this is, if we're, if we're to understand this in a symbolic way, if we're to understand that we're, we're sort of, we're hearing or, or we're listening in on this cosmic scale drama and each, each character is pointing us to a greater reality, then who in the world is the dragon? Well, the text actually tells us explicitly who the dragon is in chapter 12, verse 9. And the dragon is Satan 
or the devil? Satan or the devil? Same guy. And uh, this, is, this is actually, Paul picks up on the fact that the ultimately what we're fighting in this world, ultimately the, the, the battle that you and I face when, it, when, when, you, when, you, when there's this gap between the person that you want to be and the person that you really are, the, the person that you desire to be, the, the dad that you desire to be, the wife that you desire to be, the, the, the parent, the employee that you desire to be, and, and yet you look at your life and there's this gap and, and you feel like there's something keeping you from achieving all that God wants for you in your life and, and there's sort of this battle going on inside of you, what Paul says is actually very true. And when he says in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and, and the authorities and the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This battle, these forces are led by what, what we're taught in, in Revelation is by the dragon, who is Satan, the devil. Evil himself, the enemy, is how I often refer to him. And so what we first find is that there is sort of this, this overarching power in the dragon that the beasts are, are, are bringing about or working for. Does that make sense? And so the second character that we meet is the beast out of the sea. Now, for those of you that were here for the message a few weeks ago on Daniel chapter 7, this beast ought to sound very, very familiar. You'll remember that in Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts that come out of the sea. And we talked about how in this genre of literature, in ancient apocalyptic literature, the sea is often used as a symbol for the originality of evil. Now, we don't know exactly know why this is, but the sea was, was portrayed as, as the source of all evil. And so these evil beasts that, that, that arise out of the sea is sort of this ancient apocalyptic literature way of saying these beasts are very evil because they're coming out of the very source of evil. And so you'll notice that our, our cosmic drama begins with the dragon who is standing on the shore of the sea and then out of the sea comes this beast, and the dragon gives the first beast, the beast out of the sea, all the authority. And so we have this, we, first we have the beast out of the sea, which reminds us of Daniel chapter 7, the source of evil. Uh, and, and then the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 are uh, a bear, a lion, a leopard, and this, in Revelation, he takes all of those beasts and he combines them into one. So just as a reference... These are very, very similar apocalyptic genre books that if you read them in sort of in context or in comparison to one another, you begin to pick up all kinds of similarities. And so what he does in this one beast is he combines the, seven, the four beasts out of Daniel chapter 7. Does that make sense? Are you with me still? All right. This beast has seven heads. And we're told in chapter 17, verse 9, that the seven heads are the seven hills. Now, the seven hills is a geographical uh, giveaway for who the beast out of the sea stands for. Those of you who, who were here last week, do you remember what this is? Rome, okay? And the reason is because surrounding the city of Rome were seven hills. And it would be very similar to someone saying, uh, you know, referencing Horsetooth Rock as a way of saying Fort Collins. It's a geographical uh, giveaway of what the beast out of the sea stands for. So we know that the beast out of the sea 
in this cosmic drama is being played in real life by Rome. Okay. Now, there is, um, there's further evidence for this. Uh, Rome was a world superpower. It defeated anyone in their path. So it would make sense to portray Rome as sort of this, this conglomeration of these fierce animals. Uh, it would make sense. It was actually a very common phrase in the ancient world uh, for people to say who could make war against Rome. It, it would be like, well, you're trying to... You're trying to beat Rome. I mean, that's a, that's a battle that's already over. You know that because of the power and the authority and the forcefulness of Rome, you don't stand a chance. And so people would say, who can make war against Rome? And right here we have this phrase, who can make war against the beast? Also, there's a forced allegiance to anyone in the empire, a forced allegiance to the Roman Empire, to anyone in the Roman Empire or the surrounding colonies. In verse 7, the way of describing this is that this, this person had authority over every inhabitant of earth, every tribe, every people, every language, every place. Everyone was sort of subservient to the mighty uh, world power Rome. All inhabitants of the earth worshiped the beast, all those except for those whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so then, so we, we're, we're getting a handle on our characters. The dragon is Satan or the devil. The beast out of the sea is Rome. And then the beast out of the earth, you'll notice works on behalf of the first beast, right? It was, it was the, the devil, the, the dragon, gave its authority to the beast out of the sea, but then the beast out of the earth works in, on behalf of the beast out of the sea. Does that make sense? And it was in, so, the, the, so there's, there's this particular relationship between all of these things going on. The, the authority begins here. It's given to the beast out of the sea, which is being personified in the real world as Rome. But then the beast out of the earth is, is in many ways pointing back and calling for allegiance to Rome. And this is actually any local authorities. This is, these are the local authorities. Who in the local Roman colonies are, are forcing allegiance to Rome. Now, I'm a big Batman fan, so I was trying to think about how I could illustrate the relationship between these beasts to you, and uh, in a moment of Holy Spirit-inspired sermon preparation, I I, I realized that this is actually exactly how many of the enemies in in Hollywood play out, this relationship, right? You You always have the henchmen. You know, these are like, these are like the dispen- dispensable characters of the story. I mean, they could live, die, nobody cares, nobody knows who they are. They're just carrying out the will of someone else, okay? So in the dark night, not the dark night rises, but in the dark night, you have henchmen. And then, what are, what are, who are they working for? The Joker, okay? Some of you, all kinds of life. Oh, no. For some of you, all kinds of light bulbs are going to go off with, with this, okay? So the Joker. But the Joker is, is not the end all, is he? He actually is, is representing something far greater than himself, which is chaos or anarchy, right? And so the relationship that we have between the beasts and the dragon and all of this is actually very similar to what Hollywood portrays in The Dark Knight. 
Some of you are like, I don't buy it. All right, think about it this way. I got another one for you. This one comes from a Matthew McConaughey movie. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Think about it this way, right? Does this relationship sound familiar? The scripture tells us that God is love. And then God, who is love, sends his son to the world. Christmas, right? And then right as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then that sort of typifies his life of establishing the kingdom of who? God. And so here, we have God who has given all authority in heaven and earth to Jesus to establish his kingdom. But then, Jesus ascends into heaven and says, I am sending you a what? A helper, a counselor, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job is to do what? Give us discernment, empower us for right living, give us, sort of move us toward an allegiance to Jesus himself. Are you with me now? Some of you are like, dark night, not so much. Oh, Trinity, I'm with you, okay? Super Christians, I love it, okay? Now, the question immediately, so here we have this cosmic drama that has the, the reality of, of an enemy and evil in the world. That, that evil is being played out by Rome in this particular context. And then anyone who is demanding uh, uh, allegiance to Rome is the beast out of the earth or the local authorities. Now, here's the, here's the beauty about this cosmic drama. The beast out of the sea isn't just Rome, it's anyone who stands for, and even even in our current context, anyone who stands for the evil or enemy, anyone who's working for them, who like like sometimes we we are so (laughs) anti-Christ in our culture that it is though we are working for the devil himself. And then there are some who then will point to this. In other words, this Revelation is understood in its historical context, but has ongoing implications. The point of discernment for us is, who's this? And who's this? And are we participating in that? We'll talk more about that at the end. Okay. So, is John saying that these beasts are like God? No, he's not. In fact, what what the revelation teaches us is that the beast and and the relationship between all of these reveals to us some sort of unholy trinity, some sort of evil trinity, which serves not as a way of saying God is like this, but as a way of saying this is a parody of real power. This is a parody of real authority. In the world. Now, do you guys know what I mean when I say parody? A parody is this it's an imitation or a version of something that falls short of the reality. It's an imitation 
or a version of something that falls short of the reality. So ultimately what he wants to tell us and ultimately what he wants to to show us is that the relationship between these beasts and the dragon falls short. They hold an authority, yes, but their authority is, is simply a shadow of the true authority of God. They have some power in the world, some operational power. In other words, they make a difference in the world. You can feel their impact, but, but John wants to say that is a parody of the real impact of God the Father, Jesus his Son, and the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus. Are you with me now? I want to give you some examples of a parody. And... Uh, how many, how many of you know the song um, Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus? Okay, here's the parody. Was that awesome or what? A party in the CIA. Now, I can see that some of you are like, um, now, Revelation was written in the 90s, and so uh, we're just going to keep backing this baby up to give you some illustrations of a parody. So those of you who are boy band fans and you like the song, I Want It That Way, why don't you listen to this song, I Bought It on eBay. My first question is, do they really have an alpha alarm clock? Because if they do, that is awesome. Now, I can, I can see that I have dated myself, and many of you don't know who ALF is. YouTube it, like Netflix it, that is good TV right there. I know that some of you, that's a boy band fan. Some of you are girl band fans, and you liked really TLC, and, and uh, you know, don't go chasing waterfalls. I say don't go making phony calls. I really thought you guys would enjoy this more. Can we do one more or are you done? One more. Some of you are like, it's, it's a 50-50 split. So since it's a 50-50 split and I have the microphone, we're going to do one more. This is, uh, you know, we're going to keep backing it up. This is the oldest song, Child of the 90s. You'll love this. Uh, some of you know who NKOTB is. And they sing a song, The, the Right Stuff. And uh, this is The White Stuff. Ain't a lovely flash. You see it in 
that first song came out, there were many concerned parents that the white stuff was cocaine. And, we, and all, of us, all of us teenagers were like, just listen to the song. It's an Oreo. It was awesome. And, and some of you, I know, had the uh, New Kids on the Block pillowcase and sleeping bag. I mean, they had a whole empire. So what John is trying to do here is parody, parody the real God. What are the ways in which there, there, this truly is a parody? Well, we have to consider all of the, the roles of this, where the dragon, his main job is to create chaos. Right? Do you remember when we were in our chaos series and, and I said to you, everything in your life is not exactly as God intends. In other words, the point I was trying to make is that there is an enemy of your life seeking to bring things into your life that will, that will thwart your faith, throw you off, uh, ruin your life, all these kinds of things. And his primary role is chaos in the world. He hates order. And yet the God that we serve, the God of the universe, is not a God of chaos, but a God of creation. And so immediately the dragon sort of stands as this parody of who God really is, falls short of the actual thing. And then the beast out of the sea. Now there's this interesting detail that we're given about the beast out of the sea, and that is that he had a fatal wound to his head. And if if the beast out of the sea is Rome, the Roman ruler was Nero, and he was the first to really persecute the church and to propagate this sort of radical evil in the world. And then Nero, however, in history, this is historically uh, validated, suffered a wound to his head that was, in fact, fatal. However, some believed that he would come back to life. It was this false resurrection of, of the Roman ruler, Nero. And so people would say, because he was dead but was coming back, or it was believed that he was coming back, people would say this about Nero. Listen, this is going to blow you away. People would say, Nero is the one who was, who is not, but is to come. A parody of Jesus who did die a a real death, who served as the real sacrifice, who did rise from the dead three days later and is known not as the one who was, is not, and is to come, but is known as the one who was, who is, and is to come. It's a parody of Jesus. There's a false sacrifice versus a true sacrifice. And listen, This is so important for us to realize that the the image that we're given here is this parody that that there's this this seemingly overwhelming authority of Rome and the evil that it perpetrates and the local authorities is nothing compared to the authority of God. And then the beast out of the earth is truly a parody of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is meant, as we have already said, to point people to Jesus, to convict them of their need for Jesus. Some of you are here today and you're just checking this thing out and you're not sure about Christianity and you don't know about it and you, and, and you're, you, you have this false view of God because of the things that have happened in your life. It, but, you, but yet there's this stirring in your heart. That is the Holy Spirit working in your life, drawing you to faith in Jesus. And where the local authorities would demand allegiance to Rome, the Holy Spirit invites you to experience the love, the grace, and the mercy 
of Jesus. And so this is truly set up as a parody. And we'll just say points people. To Jesus or points people to Rome is the role of the beast out of the earth. And it mirrors the work of the Spirit leading people to Christ. And, and listen, we're given this, uh, this really interesting detail about the beast out of the earth too. He has two horns like a lamb. Well, all throughout Revelation, the lamb is Christ, the slain lamb of God. And so it's this way of saying that evil can look very good. Sometimes the worst kind of evil is cloaked on the surface of the best kind of good. And so just as we would say the Holy Spirit, when he opens his mouth, is to us the very voice of God. The beast out of the earth looks like a lamb, but when he speaks... It's the voice of the dragon. And I think for you and I, the challenge for us is to really know, are we discerning enough that we can recognize and discern the difference between the voice of the dragon and the voice of the lamb? And I would hope that we are. And Jesus picks up on this when he talks about himself as the good shepherd. He says the sheep will hear and recognize the voice of the shepherd. And this is the same sort of theme that the beast out of the earth looks like a lamb but has a voice like a dragon. And if we can just know and discern what looks good once we hear its voice, once we see its true colors, are we able to discern is it actually the voice of the lamb who was slain on our behalf? And so we see the drama in, in its fullness, we see the drama for all of its for all of its parody, and yet we wonder what in the world does this mean? Well, the goal of the devil is to try to entice the creation to follow him and the ways of the beast, and the way of the beast is the way of death. The way of the beast is the way of death. It's it's living our lives in ways that ultimately will lead us to death, to die not only a physical death, but to die a, a sort of spiritual death, where where we just where we come and, and we just we, there's there's we're alive and we're moving, but we're dead inside. That's the role of the devil is to allow you to live and to encourage you and to entice you to live in ways that are ultimately not life-giving at all, but ultimately to death. And it seems to be working because the scripture says that the whole world is worshiping the beast. All of creation, every tribe and language and people are, are in awe of the false authority of the beast, of the false power of the beast and the dragon. And so John's vision, John's revelation, John's apocalypse is to expose the power of Rome as a parody of the real power of God. Are you with me now? That's the purpose of the revelation. 
It's not to give us some sort of Bible code. It's to say that, that the current reality, whatever context you live in, and how this is being played out, this is a parody of, of the real power of God, the real truth of God, the real mercy of God. It may try to entice you. It may say, it may say that life is going to be good over here, but ultimately it falls short of authentic life in God. Let me play this out a little bit. Ultimately, the dragon is... is asking you to worship a parody and receive a false hope. And the hope is this. The false hope is the hope of what our culture has come to know as the good life. The good life. Where I watch out for number one, where I get back at those who hurt me, where I lie to get to the top, where I accumulate all that I can and I hold on to it tightly. That's the good life, right? Good life is getting to the top. Do whatever you got to do to get there. The good life is having lots of stuff, man, and hold on to it with a tight grip. The good life is to watch out for number one. And the good life is they hurt you, you get them back. They punched you, you punch them harder. Now, whether that's a real punch or, or a symbolic one, it doesn't matter. But we live in a culture that says the good life is made up if we're selfish, if we have a heart of revenge, if we practice deception, and if our heart is full of greed, then if you'll do those things, then you'll have what it takes to succeed in the real world, in this world. And you know what? Those lead to death. Those ways of life are not life-giving at all, but fall far short of the life-giving power of the one true God. And then the job of the beast of the earth or the local authorities, or, and really that's anyone who propagates the rule of Rome, was to force allegiance to Rome. Their role was to force allegiance to this world superpower, this, this, this country and this empire that ultimately represented the evil and the chaos and the anarchy of the enemy. And so they said... You will have to be, you will be forced to wear a mark of your allegiance to Rome. Now, this book is highly symbolic. And the mark of the beast is not to be taken literally, but to be taken very seriously. That being said, there is some historical evidence that there was a real and actual mark that you would wear to display your allegiance to Rome. And it is right around this time that a Christian mark was born that you see everywhere on bumper stickers, on, on uh, signs, on bookmarks, on business cards. You see it everywhere. And it was right during the rule of Nero over Rome that this Christian mark was born historically. And the mark is this. And I apologize that some of you probably can't see this. The ichthus. 
And so imagine yourself in a culture where you literally had to wear a mark to show your allegiance to Rome, and yet the Christians were walking around and saying, my allegiance does not belong to Rome. There is a higher power. There is a more authentic reality. There is a more authentic hope than what Rome has to offer me, and there is a more authentic hope than if I just follow the rules and do what Rome tells me, and yet I am being forced to wear this mark. And so they had to go underground. They were being persecuted. And so what they would do is they would draw an ark in the sand, and if then if there was another Christian around, they would immediately recognize it, finish the ark, and we have what was born as the ichthus, the mark of the Christian. And so, this has all kinds of implications for us. But before I want to do that, but before we go there, I want to do this. I want to look into the next chapter. The next chapter. And all we have to do is read the first verse. Remember, he had just talked about the mark of the beast, that the that everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free or slave, will have to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, or they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name, and that number is 666. Then I looked, verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had a name of the, who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. What? No one ever told me that. Man, I'm 13, verse 18, but no one ever told me about chapter 14, verse 1, where the Christians are marked as well. You see, we, we have all this fear and trepidation. Will you receive the mark? But the surprise in Revelation is that everyone's life is marked. The question is, whose mark do you bear? question is, whose mark do you bear? The faithful of God have a mark on their foreheads. And 144,000, some people get caught up in that number and again want to take it literally, but 144,000 represents a vast multitude. In the ancient culture, when this was being written, their numerology was not nearly as advanced as ours. And so uh, 144,000 was this huge number. It was meant to represent this unthinkable, vast army of people. It's like when Dr. Evil said, one million dollars. And everybody laughed at him. Some of you haven't seen that movie. You are better for it. I promise you. (laughs) The faithful bear the mark of Christ on their foreheads. Well, let's get down. This is a lot of information so far, right? Let's get down to the so what. For the seven churches, they faced two temptations in particular. That this apocalypse was trying to speak truth into them regarding these two temptations. The first temptation was this, to mix civil religion with a Christian faith. To mix civil religion with a Christian faith. Let me tell you, Rome was a religion. They were absolutely full of themselves. And they, they built statues to themselves. They had, they had the statue of the goddess Nike. And it did not look like a shoe. Okay? All over Rome. And you know what Nike is Greek for? Victory. And so they had statues all over the streets of Rome of the goddess Nike to represent they rule. 
They're victorious overall. I mean, allegiance to Rome was an absolute religion in the ancient world. And that posed a very particular kind of problem for, for, the, for the Christians of that day. Do we hold our ultimate allegiance to Rome, who demands it? Or do we hold our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and the, the, the kingdom that he is building and the kingdom that he is bringing? It was a real temptation to mix just a little bit of civil religion, Roman religion. And then with the, in other words, let me put it this way. It was a real temptation to mix some kingdom of Rome with kingdom of God. And this, of course, is a temptation for you and I. There are many things that for us in our culture are civilly accepted and looked up on. And yet, when we look at the scriptures, we see that maybe civil religion offers us nothing but a parody of the true hope that Jesus offers. Let me give you two examples. Some of you will not like these. That's okay. It is a poor sermon that gives no offense. The example is this. Tolerance is one of the highest values in our culture. You're okay, I'm okay, everyone and everything is okay. Okay? Okay. Tolerance. We teach our kids to tolerate. We teach our adults to tolerate who haven't learned it. Tolerating and tolerance is one of the highest values in our culture. Now, some of you will expect me to say that the Christian way is to demand that we are right and they are wrong and that tolerance is sort of a, a cheap example of standing up for what's right. I think tolerance is a cheap example of love. In fact, I would say that tolerance is the, is the cheapest form of love that our culture has rised up above love itself. You see, the scripture doesn't say, tell your enemy and those that disagree with you that they're wrong and you're right. Scripture says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And I think that sometimes in the name of civil religion, we have cheapened the real authentic hope that the Bible offers us, which is to truly love those who see differently, who act differently. And sometimes, sometimes we allow our vote to be all that we, to be all the action we do. And so we vote against this amendment, for this amendment, vote this way for that party, and then we wash our hands and say, with my vote, I've showed that I'm tolerant. Or with my vote, I've showed that I'm not tolerant and I've stood up for what's right. When the Bible tells us over and over and over that we ought to love. And so civil religion says tolerance. The Bible says love. You and I face the clash of civil religion and, and true Christian faith all the time. Let me give you another, another example, probably less popular. The room, if possible, may get more quiet. Another example, most Christians are, are pro-life out of a reverence for life, and yet the civil thing is to be very pro-war. So we support killing people from other countries, but not our own babies. 
And I think the Bible says that life is valuable wherever it is and whatever nationality. And I'm not trying to make any political statements, and I'm not trying to, to make any uh, statements at all about the U.S. military or anything like that. I'm certainly, all I'm simply saying is that we, as Christians, need to be the ones to ask the hard questions. And we, as Christians, need to be the people of truth. If we profess the truth of Christ, then we ought to be truth seekers in the world, regardless of how difficult or unpopular it may be. And so we, we must wrestle with all of this in the same way that the Christians had to in the, the very earliest Christians. So the first temptation is to mix civil religion with Christian faith. The second temptation is to believe in the hope of Rome. Rome portrayed a particular kind of hope. They enticed people into allegiance with a particular kind of hope. The hope of Rome was of wealth, of power, of greed, of selfishness, of deception, of self-promotion. These were the hopes of Rome. And let me tell you, church, these are the hopes of today. These are the hopes that culture is trying to tell you over and over and over again. Don't lie about this, but when it really matters, and if it has real consequences, go ahead and tell that lie if it's going to lead to a self-promotion. If it's going to lead to some sort of advantage for you, it's okay. It's okay to be greedy because you got to get all you can. You got to, because those, we've built our whole security system for ourselves around the accumulation of stuff. These are the hopes of Rome. These are the hopes of today. We are taught from the the time that we are very little to look out for number one, to be, the, to be the best at all costs, to compete. And then we wonder why our sports are filled with drug users and our corporations filled with deception. This is what we have breeded for ourselves based on a false portrayal of hope in the world. I didn't think I would get an amen. Jesus offers a far different hope, a real hope, a hope of a life filled not with revenge but forgiveness, not with greed but generosity, not with deception but truth, and he offers us life through his death. Everything is upside down in the kingdom of God. So for us, the temptations are precisely what they were for the earliest Christians. And this apocalypse, this revelation, this image, this cosmic scale drama that plays out with all these weird images of beasts actually calls us to do the very same things. To seal our hearts fully to Christ and to refuse the parody of hope that is so prevalent in our life and in our culture and instead embrace the life of real hope in Christ. Are you with me now? We cannot, however, by embrace the hope of Christ without Christ himself and his death for us. I'm almost done. For it is the death of the lamb that activates this hope in us. 
It is the death of the lamb that, first of all, displays this, this much more true and authentic hope. And then it is the death and the resurrection of the lamb that activates this hope. This hope is real. It's not something that we can't grasp onto. It's not something that's just out of reach. It's not something that's just a good idea. It's not just an ideology. It's not just a religion. It is a real, true, authentic hope made possible through the death of the lamb that we might have relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, that we might experience the love and grace and mercy of God. It is a real hope that is made available to us and it is displayed and it is activated by the death of the lamb. Let me show you something about the Greek that will blow your mind. In chapter 13, verse 17, this phrase could not buy or sell without the mark of the beast is the Greek word agorazo. And then when we read on in chapter 14, Let's pick up with verse 2 where we left off. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. And then they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. We, we met the four living creatures in chapter 4 and all of the elders. And no one could learn the song except this vast multitude who had been redeemed from the earth. The word redeemed in chapter 14 Verse 3 is also the Greek word agorazo. Let me say this. Those who can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast have been bought by the blood of the lamb. Those who can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast have been bought by the blood of the lamb. Do you get a, a vision of what John is trying to do? He's trying to call us to allegiance, unwavering allegiance to the real hope of Christ. And so John's point seems to be, you bear one mark or another, whose mark do you bear? And where does your allegiance really lie? Let me keep reading in, verse, in chapter 14. I got a couple things that I want to point out. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins, and they followed the lamb wherever he goes, and they poured, uh, and they purchased from among the human race and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb, and no lie was found in their mouths, for they are blameless. And then I saw an angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim for those who live on the earth, and he was proclaiming this to what? To every nation, tribe, and language of people. That sounds a lot like those people who had given their allegiance to the beast out of the sea. Remember the beast of the sea, he, all the people of every language and tribe and nation have given their allegiance to him. And now the angel shows up proclaiming the eternal gospel and he proclaims it to those same, that same group of people. The phrasing is exactly the same to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And then he said in a loud voice, this is the call. This is the response in, in light of all this, in light of the cosmic drama. This is the response. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea that God oversees everything even the sea which is sort of this the source of all evil God is in control of that he oversees that he has authority over that he is a creator he has authority over the heavens the earth and the sea and the springs of water and the second angel followed him and said fallen Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is another name for Rome. 
fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, who has made all the people of the earth drink the wine of her adulteries. Man, when we see this book for what it is, we stand in awe of who God is. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving. Uh